Good morning on this Resurrection Sunday. Pray with me as we begin. Loving Father, we celebrate the glory of Christ's resurrection this morning. And we celebrate the promise that all who trust only in him will also be raised just as he was raised. We ask you to open our eyes through this wonderful passage to see clearly how his resurrection compels us to live here and now until the day that we see him face to face. And we ask it in his incomparable name. Amen. Again, good morning. This is uh, certainly a different kind of Easter Sunday service than we've ever done at Community Bible Chapel. I'm sure that's true at a lot of, a whole lot of churches in the world today. <clears throat> but, uh, but God has been doing amazing, wonderful things in our midst. We have a, a perfect shepherd who continues to faithfully care for his flock and to put us to eternally valuable use. And uh, I've gotten to see many evidences of that over recent weeks. We have much cause to rejoice this morning as we remember the glorious resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to say thanks once again for the many prayers that, uh, that have gone up from our little flock for my neighbor, uh, Debbie's and my neighbor, and for his dear family. He passed away Monday night after uh, a very difficult 16 days on a ventilator. As I mentioned to you before, he reached out to me by text from the emergency room on his last conscious day, which was March 20th. I replied to him with the same straightforward gospel message that he had come to expect from me uh, because of the many conversations that we had had before that. He never replied to that message. Uh, that same afternoon, he was put on a ventilator, and of course, with the ventilator, he was put, on, uh, put into a drug-induced sleep from which uh, his mortal body never awoke. But the fact that he sought me out, having plenty of evidence what I would say to him, makes me hopeful that, uh, that he actually wanted to hear it that morning and that we'll see him in the kingdom of our Lord. Please continue to pray for his, his family and his friends and for our interactions with them. We so want to show them the love of Christ, and, and we love them dearly. Everything about our neighbor's death has been a timely and powerful reminder to me in this Easter season of just how absolutely central the resurrection of Jesus is to our faith, to our proclamation, and to our practice day by day. Our passage this morning is all of 1 Corinthians 15, and you'll be happy to know that I don't intend to address all of the marvelous truths contained in, in that 58-verse chapter. Instead, I want to focus most on one facet of the chapter. We'll talk through 
most of the content of the chapter, but, but I want to focus on the in, indispensable connection between the glorious truth of Christ's resurrection and the way that you and I who trust in Christ are to live day by day, here and now. 1 Corinthians 15 is <laughs> it's an amazing passage. If you haven't really spent time in it before, I pray that after this message you'll, you'll carve out some time in this, in this next few days to, to really dig into it. In this chapter, Paul meticulously lays out the truth concerning the, resurre the resurrection of Jesus and the implications of his resurrection for us who believe in him. He begins in verses 1 through 8 with the historical fact, which is the essence of our gospel proclamation. He says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then he'll tell us a little later what would cause that belief to be in vain. Verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve and after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain alive until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Paul declares in that, in that statement that Jesus came from heaven to earth and actually did the very things that the Old Testament prophets said in advance that he would do. That's what he means by the repeated words, according to the scriptures. The long-promised Christ, the Messiah King, of whom the prophets continually spoke, is also the suffering, dying, resurrected servant of Yahweh, of whom the prophets also spoke. Jesus is that promised one, the Son of God who came down from heaven, became a man, lived a sinless life, died on the cross in our place, was buried, and was raised from the dead. After his resurrection from the dead, many, many people saw him and spoke with him face to face, including Paul himself. And Paul personally knew many of those who had seen him. So as he was saying these things, he was, he was speaking to people who could corroborate what he, had been, what he was telling them. After presenting the fact of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice for us and of his bodily resurrection and glory, Paul goes on to tell us what's at stake for us in light of Christ's resurrection. And it's a lot. He declares very forcefully that everything from the legitimacy of our faith to our eternal destiny to how we live right now all hinge 
on whether or not the bodily resurrection of Jesus actually happened. He says in verses 13 and 14, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. A few verses later, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And then comes a real zinger in verse 19. If we had hoped in Christ only in this life, we are of all men most to be pitied. The practical impact of the resurrection of Christ is all-encompassing. Every single thing that we believe as Christians and everything that determines how we live our lives is bound up in the truth or falsehood of the physical resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus has been raised, then we who trust in him also will be raised. Our faith in him is rightly placed, and, and living for him is the only reasonable way of life. It's the only way of life that makes any sense at all. If Jesus has not been raised, then our faith is a joke. And living for him with all the sacrifices and risks and inevitable offense to others that that entails makes our lives a pathetic waste of time and resources. And we are of all people most to be pitied. Now that's pretty stark. <laughs> that's what Paul says. It's also perfectly true. But the very next verse resolves the question decisively and emphatically. Paul says, verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And in the next verse, he, he tells us who that all is that will be resurrected to life rather than to judgment. He says, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Those who belong to Christ will be raised to eternal life. Paul, who met the resurrected Christ face to face, declares what he absolutely knows to be true. As surely as I know that the lovely woman that I spoke to a few minutes ago in my house is my wife. And Paul, as I said, knew a bunch of other people who also knew with absolute certainty that the resurrection of Jesus was true. He declares that Christ's bodily resurrection guarantees that all those who are Christ at his coming will also be raised from the dead just as he was. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection and we are the latter fruits. And that's, that's huge. That's, 
it's impossible to state how important that is to us as believers. What will our resurrection be like? In verse 35, Paul presents a vitally important question. How are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? Based on what Jesus had taught and what, what Paul and many others had witnessed, they were supposed to already, his readers were supposed to already know the answer to that question. So he gently scolds them for, for not, not uh, paying attention. And then after introducing those two hugely important questions, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they, do they come? Paul launches into the greatest treatise in the whole Bible on the nature of resurrection, Christ's and ours. Now, I would be foolish to attempt to replace Paul's God-breathed words with my own for such a life-defining declaration as the one that follows. So I'm just going to read verses 39 to 53. They're astonishing. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. The last Adam, Excuse me, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last man, the last Adam, sorry, I messed that up. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the earthy, so also we shall bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I, I tell you all a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. 
Isn't that, isn't that marvelous? All of these miraculous things are true of our resurrection because they were already true of Christ's resurrection. We will be raised bodily, physically, just as he was. Our dying mortal bodies will be transformed forever from perishable to imperishable, from natural to spiritual, from weak to powerful, from earthly to heavenly, from mortal to immortal, just as his was. Paul concludes his beautiful explanation of our resurrection with the proclamation of Christ's absolute victory over death itself. Verse 54, But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul taunts death in that passage. It's like he's saying, death, bring it on. We have nothing to fear from you. Brothers and sisters, death has no sting for us who are in Jesus. His victory over sin and over the curse of sin, which is death, is absolute and eternal. So where does all this leave us? <laughs> what does it affect in our lives right now? The answer is, of course, everything, <laughs> absolutely everything. Hebrews 2 verses 14 and 15 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power over death, that is, the devil, the power of death, excuse me, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And listen to that again. Might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. God says that the fear of death enslaves. And the slavery that that, that fear takes, uh, the, the, the slavery that that fear of death produces in people takes a lot of different forms. Uh, for many, it's simply an abject fear that drives them to protect themselves regardless of what it costs anybody else. And unfortunately, we're seeing some of that in our culture in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, for others, their slavery to fear of death takes the form of an elaborate denial of the reality of death as God declares it to be. They cannot bear or will not bear what God has clearly revealed about the death of those who reject Christ, so they replace it with something, something that's easier to swallow. Soon after my neighbor's death, someone who knew him well posted a quote that my neighbor would no doubt have agreed with 
for most of his life. The quote is from a physicist. He's also, this man who wrote the, the who made this statement is also a writer, a broadcast journalist for National Public Radio, and a stand-up comedian. <laughs> it's quite a quite a set of, uh, of jobs, named Aaron Freeman. The quote went viral after Mr. Freeman recited it on NPR's All Things Considered <clears throat> in June of 2005. What I'm about to read is the absolute denial and negation of exactly what we as believers confidently and joyfully celebrate every Easter and every Sunday and every day of our lives as the redeemed people of God. Here's the quote. It's, it takes a couple of minutes, so bear with me. Aaron Freeman says, You want a physicist to speak at your funeral. You want the physicist to talk to your grieving family about the conservation of energy so they will understand that your energy has not died. You want the physicist to remind your sobbing mother about the first law of thermodynamics, that no energy gets created in the universe and none is destroyed. You want your mother to know that all your energy, every vibration, every BTU of heat, every wave of every particle that was her beloved child remains with her in this world. You want the physicist to tell your weeping father that Amid energies of the cosmos, you gave as good as you got. And at one point, you'd hope that the physicist would step down from the pulpit and walk to your broken-hearted spouse there in the pew and tell him that all the photons that ever bounced off your face, all the particles whose paths were interrupted by your smile, by the touch of your hair, hundreds of trillions of particles have raced off like children their ways forever changed by you. And as your widow rocks in the arms of a loving family, may the physicist let her know that all the photons that bounced from you were gathered in the particle detectors that are her eyes, that those photons created within her constellations of electromagnetically charged neurons whose energy will go on forever. I'm almost finished, but this last part really is, is mind-blowing. And the physicist will remind the congregation of how much all our energy is given off as heat. There may even be a few fanning themselves with their programs as he says it, and he will tell them that the warmth that flowed through you in life is still here, still part of all that we are, even as we who mourn can continue the heat of our own lives. And listen to this part. And you'll want the physicist to explain to those who loved you that they need not have faith. Indeed, they should not have faith. Let them know that they can measure, that scientists have measured precisely the conservation of energy and found it accurate, verifiable, and consistent across space and time. You can hope that your family will examine the evidence and satisfy themselves that the science is sound and that they'll be comforted. They'll be comforted to know 
that your energy is still around. According to the law of the conservation of energy, not a bit of you is gone. You're just less orderly. Amen. Is that the comfort that you want your bereaved spouse or mom to hear at your funeral? That all the photons that ever bounced off your face are still out there bouncing around somewhere and maybe, just maybe, one or two of them might one day bounce off of her face? That all the heat energy that ever inhabited your body is still somewhere in the vast universe dissipating further and further into the cold blackness of space? Wow, isn't that comforting? I'm sorry, but... That is a slap in God's face. And that's one of the saddest and most hopeless things I've ever heard in my entire life. When I searched for that, for that, the name of that man and several words of that quote, I got 240,000 hits on Google. So a lot of people have read that, and a lot of people buy into it. There are physicists and molecular biologists and geologists and geneticists and people from every walk of science, every discipline of science, who would consider that to be utter nonsense. Because all creation declares the handiwork of God. I replied privately to that person who posted that and attempted to share with that person the hope of everlasting resurrection in Jesus Christ that I had already set before my neighbor one last time on his last lucid day. The hope that I pray with all my heart, he embraced before his last breath. Instead of the complete end of humanness and personhood that that physicist declares to be the finale of every mortal life, instead of the dissolution into stardust of all relationship and friendship and community that meant so much to my very friendly and sociable neighbor, I pray that he turned to his creator and, his own, and the only savior that exists and that he now finds in him the perfection of relationship and fellowship and community and identity in Christ for which human beings were created by God. Beloved, these are the truths that we must be sharing with lost people all around us and the opportunity has never been greater. I've said this many times in the last few weeks. It's very much on my heart, and I'll say it one more time. God has handed us, his church, an extraordinary opportunity right now, and he intends for us to be taking advantage of that, of that opportunity as his ambassadors on this earth. The very last verse of 1 Corinthians 15 is, the punchline of this 
this marvelous chapter. It's not the kind of punchline that makes a joke. It's the line that delivers the punch. While all but a few verses in this 58-verse chapter are doctrine, pure, powerful teaching about the resurrection, this very, very last verse of the chapter is a command. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, if you were trying to come up with adjectives to describe yourself in a resume so you could make a great first impression on a prospective employer, would one of those adjectives be immovable? <laughs> would you, your summary about yourself say something like this? I'm highly motivated, energetic, and creative, and, and I, I will bring my immovable spirit to every project. In fact, I'll be the most immovable member of any team that gets to work with me. I'm sure you're all writing, writing that down so you can use it on your next resume, right? <laughs> no, no, you're not doing that because that's not the way to land a job. But brothers and sisters, when it comes to your usefulness to God to advance his kingdom in this God-forsaking world, being immovable is right up at the top of the list of necessary traits. And this passage, this chapter, gives us the reason, the greatest reason of all to be immovable as representatives of Christ on this earth. Nothing that will last has changed, not even in the last couple of months. Nothing that will last is threatened. The whole civilized world has been through the most pervasive change in the last couple of months that I think any of us has seen in our lifetimes. For us in the U.S., nearly all of that change has happened in just the last month. More than 16 million Americans have been added to the unemployment rolls in the last three and a half weeks. Trillions of dollars of government funding is being poured into the economy in a desperate effort to mitigate the catastrophic impact of shutting down a huge portion of the productivity of an entire nation. And, and that's just one country. I have never seen the world, the whole world, so pervasively scared of anything in my 63 years on earth. But for us who belong to Christ, nothing that will last has changed. Not one single thing. If the COVID-19 pandemic has changed your life from peaceful to fretful, or from self-sacrificing to self-protective, then you've been moved when God calls you to be immovable. If you're hunkered down, detached, and insulated from the life of the body of Christ and from your neighbors and co-workers and friends, God intends for you to reverse course right now. 
and to get creatively engaged in the lives of other people. The tools available to you and to me for that engagement are everywhere, even while we still have to socially distance from one another. I'm reading a, an exceptional book right now that Jim Hummel gave me. It's about the, the letter-writing ministry of John Newton, uh, who wrote the most well-known Christian hymn in existence, Amazing Grace. Newton was, by pretty much all accounts, a better writer than he was a speaker. You know, kind of like the Apostle Paul. <laughs> and Newton's letters were powerfully used by God in many lives. Today, you and I can, can get a letter from sender to recipient in real time. We need to use that opportunity. We have, we have tools like Zoom and Skype and Google Hangouts and email and text and paper and pencils and postage stamps and whatever else is out there. Let's use them. Let's enter into struggles and illnesses and childbirths and grocery shopping and medication fetching and lawn mowing and whatever else we can do to be alongside people in the midst of this present very difficult circumstance. And when the circumstance changes, let's keep doing all of the above in the best ways available to us. Let's be intentional about loving and serving and about proclaiming the good news of eternal life in Jesus Christ. In all that we do, beloved, let us be ready and eager to give account for the hope that is in us because of the sacrificial death and glorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus. God says to you and me, because Christ's resurrection is the guarantee of your resurrection, be steadfast. Right now. Be immovable. Right now. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Not later, not when COVID-19 finally abates, but always. Knowing that our toil, our labor, is not in vain in the Lord. That's God's assignment to His children in light of the glorious reality of resurrection. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I have bad news and good news to share with you. The bad news is that everybody will be raised from the dead just once. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. You will not get a do-over. There is no such thing as reincarnation, and there is, there is no option as benign as merely returning to star stuff as Carl Sagan and Aaron Freeman and Stephen Hawking would like you to believe. Actually, and sadly, Carl Sagan and Stephen Hawking already know that they were wrong about that. I earnestly pray that they discovered 
that they were before they took their last breath. There are only two options when take, you take your last breath. If you die rejecting Jesus Christ, you will one day be raised from the dead together with everyone else who rejected him. And you will stand before his throne of judgment, already judged, because of the same rebellion against God that condemns every single one of us if we are judged on our own merits instead of on the merits of Jesus. And you will be separated from the presence of God and from the glory of his power in a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth forever. Anyone who's not willing to tell you that is a lousy representative of Christ. The bad news is that everyone, every person will be raised from the dead just once. But God will turn that into the, the best news ever if you will take him at his word by trusting Jesus as your Savior. Because the good news is that everybody will be raised from the dead just once. Everyone who with childlike faith has abandoned trust in self or trust in anything else and has trusted only in Jesus to make him stand spotless and blameless and righteous in the eyes of our perfectly holy God will be raised from the dead together with all those who believe in Jesus and will receive an imperishable, immortal, glorified body in which he or she will dwell forever with God and with all the saints of God in the place that Jesus has wonderfully prepared for us. Pray with me. Dear Father, Thank you for leaving none of this to guesswork for us. You couldn't possibly have spoken any more clearly than you have about the reality of resurrection. We praise you for your promise that you will soon raise all who trust in Jesus and will replace these dying and corrupt bodies with redeemed, imperishable, immortal bodies made new in the likeness of the body of our resurrected and ascended Savior and Lord. And we will dwell with him and with one another in your amazing and beautiful presence forever. Dear Father, teach us to be as you have commanded us to be, steadfast, immovable, always abounding in your work on this earth, knowing that our toil is not in vain in the Lord because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We ask it in his precious name, and we ask it for his sake. Amen. Have a blessed resurrection day and keep your eyes on the prize.